Welcome to the Jewelry District, a podcast by JCK Magazine and JCK Online. Today, JCK's Rob Bates and Victoria Gamelski will be discussing the upcoming holidays, the luxury industry, and responsible gold sourcing. Hey everyone, welcome to the Jewelry District. This is Victoria Gamelski, Editor-in-Chief of JCK and jckonline.com, and I'm with... Rob Bates, News Director of JCK and jckonline.com. Happy holidays. We're recording this on Cyber Monday, so I've been eating smoked turkey for days now. I really need to ease back on the turkey. How about you? Do you guys have turkey too? Yeah, we had it delivered and it was uh, pretty nice. Have you done uh, Cyber Monday shopping? You know, I did Black Friday cyber shopping. From what I understand, a lot of people did cyber shopping on Friday. So I don't even know how to separate Black Friday now from Cyber Monday. Right. It's all one big retail opportunity. It is. But let me tell you, I have been kind of like hovering over shopping carts all weekend long. And I've checked out a few sample sales of jewelry myself. So I hope I'm not alone. I don't think I am. But first, I wanted to mention a a sad story. And those of you who read our website and follow our newsletter will have already seen this news. But we lost a very beloved member of our industry on November 22nd to a heart attack, William Liesel Henderson, behind the Henderson Collection, a longstanding exhibitor at the Luxury Show at Centurion, passed away. And I'm so sorry for his family passing on my deepest condolences He was so well-liked. I had the pleasure of meeting him once or twice, but didn't know him that well. Although um, I think I'm alone, really. He he seemed to be just utterly beloved by everybody. There's been so much praise on Facebook and on our comments section about Liesl and just how friendly he was to everybody that passed. So I'm I'm so sorry to hear of his passing. Did, Did you get a chance to ever meet him, Rob? Not to my recollection. You know, I've talked to a lot of people, so it's certainly possible I've talked to him. But, uh, you know, I've seen the same things you have on social media. He seems like an extremely friendly, good person. And it's really sad that he's gone so soon. So I give my condolences, too, to his family. Yeah, he was just 62 and um, died just a few days before Thanksgiving. So, yeah, sad note. Um, and, you know, capping a sad year, I'm sure there are lots of other passings we could talk about. We won't linger there. We will transition to a talk about the holidays, since obviously that's barreling down upon us. And we did open with this mention of Cyber Monday. What are you hearing, Rob, about holiday sales in general? Because I think we've all heard a lot gearing up for this holiday about how it'll be different and also how it's turning out in terms of expectations to be better than expected. But what are you hearing? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm hearing about what you're hearing. I think there's certainly some jewelers who had some pretty good years and they're hoping to top it off with a good holiday. And when I say good years, it's all kind of based on what they were expecting, given that a lot of them were closed for a couple months. I think a lot of people, especially when they reopened, were pleasantly surprised at the pent-up demand. You know, I think the forecasts are actually pretty good for this holiday. There's different forecasts for jewelry, like the NRF had a slight decline in the amount of people that said they were going to buy jewelry. Conference board forecast a major decline, which we don't like to hear about. But, you know, there was just an article on CNBC, which used data from the NPD group, mm-hmm. says that sales of jewelry from March to October were down about 30% year over year. However, they've recovered in recent months and the holiday could give the industry a lift. And it quotes Signet CEO, Gina Drosis, 
she's been surprised by the jump in sales of earnings and pendants as people look for, quote, Zoom-worthy jewelry to express themselves in, quote, that little box on the screen. And she said, consumers have gravitated more to colored stones, including engagement rings. It's just been a bit of a dark time. And that's one of the ways that consumers are bringing color and life and light back into their lives. So there's a lot of different opinions about how jewelry is going to do this year. I tend to agree with Marshall Cohen, who's the chief analyst of the MPD group. What he told CNBC, he said it's going to be up to the retailers to really coax and swoon the gifter to recognize that jewelry is a gift. It's going to soothe all the pain that we've had to endure. So I think the idea is, you know, there's a lot of people telling you that it'll be a good holiday because people aren't spending money on travel because they, you know, they want to give an emotional gift because it's been such an emotional time. And I agree that's an opportunity, but it's something that people have to take advantage of. It's up to people in the industry to make sure it's top of mind through advertising, through promotions. And then I think it can be a good season, but nothing's a given. Yeah, I mean, it does seem like it is a very labor-intensive season in, in its own way, not necessarily that you've got tons of people working your store, but that you are having to reach out and really be very creative about how you show jewelry to people, whether that's via Zoom or here in California, you can still do backyard showings. And I have spoken to jewelers who have organized, you know, backyard showings in, in a garden, for example, or they've done, you know, one-on-one -on -one appointments, one-on-two appointments where they'll invite a mother and daughter or two best friends to come have a champagne and caviar breakfast in their atelier. But of course, the jeweler's masked and the clients get to sort of let loose a little bit and, and maybe even be unmasked in a space where they're having fun and they're drinking champagne and looking at jewelry, but it's all safe and very, very intimate. That's been very successful. To your point, you're not just sitting there waiting for these things to come to you. You have to go to your clients. So what we see here all these months into this crazy, crazy year is that things are a lot better than we would have predicted back in March. And who knows? I spoke to, I went to see Mark Patterson, who's a really well-known couture designer based in Corona del Mar, which is a little enclave south of Newport Beach here in Southern California. And He's got a retail store, but has for years had a thriving wholesale business. And he told me that his wholesale was down because trunk shows weren't happening. And, you know, that side of his business was down, but his retail has more than doubled for 2020. It's big diamonds driving those sales. People coming in saying, you know what? We couldn't take our honeymoon trip to Australia this year. So we're going to upgrade her diamond studs. A retailer can actually double their sales from 2019. Yeah, it's amazing. It is. I think it is well positioned, but again, you have to give that positioning. You have to tell people why it's such a good gift this year. Here's an interesting stat. Just 45% of consumers plan to visit a mall this year versus 64% last year. So, and you know, there is some skittishness about the economy. A quarter of consumers said they feel stressed about the holiday this year. And this is something that we've been talking a little bit about. I think this is a story in uh, Retail Dive. It's been clear that we live in two Americas. Let's think for a moment of all those holding modestly paying jobs pre-pandemic and are now left without work, without health insurance. Previously, they would have rushed to the malls to bring cheer to their families over the holiday season. This year, it is simply not possible. So I think a lot depends on whether we get some kind of pandemic aid and pandemic relief before the end of the year because there are a lot of people who are financially stressed. I mean, you know, you hear all these things about food banks being overrun. So, you know, 
certainly at the top of the market, I think there's a lot of opportunities, but middle America is uh, having a tough time. If you're a fan of podcasts, you know that listener reviews help make them possible. Please rate, review, and subscribe to The Jewelry District wherever you may listen. And now, back to the show. No, I'm glad you pointed out that distinction because, of course, you're right. The luxury sector has been able to carry on, really, especially those that are primed for, for digital sales. And we'll touch on that in a minute. But I saw something about this campaign that a few, I think it was activists sort of trying to encourage people not to shop on Black Friday, not to spend, I think, more for sustainability purposes. I honestly feel like, you know, your purchase of any dollar value is someone else's job. So I don't know that there's as much guilt or should be guilt about buying this year. I think if you can afford to spend and can afford to buy gifts this year, you're just keeping a business and all the ancillary elements that depend on that business, whether it's the delivery driver or the company that supplies your packaging, whatever it is, you're keeping all those people afloat. You know, that's sort of a little bit different to the 2008 recession when I think luxury was a lot more of a dirty word than it is this time around. So I think if you're able to shop and you have the means, then feel good about it. I also want to say, and this obviously is preaching to the choir because so many of our listeners and readers are small retailers. You know, it's so important to buy local and support small businesses at this time. You can always get back to shopping Amazon later, but now especially it's very important to support your local businesses jewelers restaurants bookstores what have you i mean it's so important now yeah well you you mentioned amazon and it's kind of a good segue because i did want to mention there's been a lot of talk about e-commerce in the luxury space and how this year in particular things have really ramped up on that front. And there was a big article in the Times that ran on November 29th called The Luxury E-Commerce Wars Heat Up. And I'll just read you the teaser because it quite spells it out. On one side, Amazon. On the other, a new alliance of brands and platforms. Who will win? So I know we've talked about Amazon in terms of the luxury offerings. I don't know if we've ever really addressed it full on, but you know, over the past nine, 10 months, they've really tried to take advantage of the fact that so many people are now shopping exclusively online to pump up their their luxury platform or their luxury offering. And a lot of it is really more luxury fashion. It sounds like they've sort of established a few luxury storefronts online that they've invited some fashion designers to participate in. And they're really squaring off against the Richemont and LVMH and Alibaba's of the world who have I guess, recently teamed up and made a big purchase in Farfetch, which is another online luxury platform that is sort of more of a digital warehouse for brands. But I just wanted to quote some really fascinating statistics in this New York Times story. So according to data released last week, so that would be the very last week of November, by the management consulting firm Bain & Company, online luxury purchases were worth $58 billion in 2020, compared with $39 billion in 2019 nearly doubling the sector's share of the market for global luxury sales to 23% from 12%. I mean, that's staggering. In a single year, luxury online sales have gone from 12% of the luxury market to 23%. Whoa. Yeah, that is amazing. What's interesting is that from everything I understand, Alibaba is actually a big seller of luxury goods in China and in Hong Kong. But Amazon is not a big seller of luxury goods. A lot of big brands want to stay away from it. 
you know, they don't think it's glamorous. And what, what's interesting is that from what I understand, Alibaba and Tmall in particular is a pretty big player in the luxury space in China, but Amazon has not reached the same level in the United States. You know, th- there's certainly been reasons for that. Amazon is not particularly glamorous. I remember a long time ago, I did a story about Amazon entering the luxury space and somebody brought up like, why would you buy your jewelry the same place you buy your cat food? <laughs> it doesn't have the same, you know, glamour or, or resonance. And, you know, Amazon also has a reputation as a haven for counterfeits. So those are some of the issues I think that luxury brands are struggling with. I don't think they want to deal with Amazon necessarily. I think they're very protective of where their brand goes. And that is a big problem for Amazon because at that level, brands are huge. You know, people don't necessarily want to buy a generic Amazon diamond ring. If you're going to spend a huge amount of money, you want a nice name to back it up. So yeah, yeah, we'll see. I mean, it sounds like, again, I think a lot of their emphasis in terms of the luxury category has been on fashion. I, I really don't know what jewelers in terms of the luxury category that work with Amazon, but it sounds like they're inviting brands to control how their goods are presented on the app. And so, because that utilitarian kind of interface, you know, the experience is the same as when you buy your cat food or your diapers or what have you. Yeah, that's a real turnoff if someone's trying to spend on luxury. But if Amazon has created a different looking space for that or allowed brands to create spaces in their likeness, then who knows? Um, Scott Galloway, who's incredibly quotable, he's a marketing guru and professor of business at New York University's Stern School of Business. Um, He was quoted in the New York Times piece, and I have to just leave off with his final quote because it's so good. He basically says, luxury is struggling with the fact that e-commerce is basically becoming Amazon in the West and Alibaba in the East. He said, before making an analogy to World War II, quote, none of them can fight the Germans on their own, so they need to ally with the Russians, which in this case is Alibaba. This is like the Russians and the British and the Americans getting together. They are competitors. The real enemy, however, is in Seattle. Don't count out Amazon just yet. I, I think one of the things that article brings up is that the different luxury houses and there's Richemont and LVMH and Kerrig, they were thinking of getting together and forming their own kind of luxury platform. And they eventually decided not to, that, you know, they, they see themselves as competitors, but perhaps that might be the answer. Yeah. I mean, it's just, I think it underscores for all our listeners, though, the need to have your digital operation up to snuff. If you don't, well, you've just missed out on a lot this year, perhaps to the point of business no longer being tenable. One other subject we wanted to tackle on today's podcast is this topic that has really stayed with us and and really been a major source of industry attention this year, almost more than any other, is, of course, responsible sourcing. And that conversation is only amped up in light of COVID. I think we've brought it up here on the podcast numerous times. The reason I wanted to bring it up today is I, I recently did a piece for the New York Times on responsible gold sourcing in the watch industry. We hear a lot about the jewelry industry, but the Swiss watch industry, we don't always hear a lot about, even though they're obviously huge consumers of gold for gold wristwatches or two-tone model rose gold, what have you. And the industry did come under some scrutiny a couple of years ago from both Human Rights Watch and WWF. 
which in 2018 both released reports on how the industry was doing in terms of its sourcing and also its transparency or more accurately lack of transparency. The Swiss, you know, have this reputation for for secrecy and opacity and that really hasn't changed despite growing consumer demand for for more transparency and more I guess just being more open and honest about where where you source your raw materials. My story, what the focus was on was really that, you know, a lot of Swiss companies do great things in terms of partnering with conservation groups and putting solar panels on their on their the rooftops of their factories and doing all kinds of really great things. But what they don't do that well on the whole is really get into the nitty gritty of where their raw materials are sourced. I'm talking here about gold and diamonds and primarily gold. And very, very few will tell you. It's hard to say if they know where the gold is sourced and just won't say or if they don't know and won't say. But they are coming under scrutiny. And in fact, on November 24th, Human Rights Watch released an update to its 2018 report. So its 2018 report was called The Hidden Cost of Jewelry. And it covered 13 jewelry and watch companies, mostly jewelry, but also a few watch companies, including Rolex, um, including Bulgari, Tiffany and Company, Cartier. And so this follow-up report just released is now called Sparkling Jewels, Opaque Supply Chains, Jewelry Companies Changing Sourcing Practices in COVID-19. And um, it includes 15 companies. So two, in addition to the 13 they covered in 2018, And, you know, things have improved, but they're still not great. And they do this interesting kind of a hierarchy of ranking on how these companies are on the topic of responsible sourcing. And none make it to the excellent tier, which is fulfills all of the criteria for responsible sourcing. None make it there. But in the strong category, two companies have made it there. And that's Tiffany & Company and Pandora. Moderate, which means they've taken some steps towards responsible sourcing. Um, Bulgari, Cartier, and Signet are all in the moderate category. In the fair category, which means taking a few steps toward responsible sourcing, are Boodles, Chopard, Harry Winston. In the weak category, very few steps toward responsible sourcing are Chow Taifuk, Christ, which I believe is a German company, and Tanishk an Indian company. And in the absolutely no ranking whatsoever, because they provide no information at all about responsible sourcing, are four companies. Kalyan Jewelers, which again, I believe is definitely an overseas firm. I'm not sure if it's Indian or Chinese. Mikimoto, Rolex, and TBZ. So Mikimoto and Rolex are obviously the two brands that stand out in this market. And when I wrote my New York Times story about responsible sourcing in the Swiss watch industry, I mean, Rolex is the, you know, is the elephant in the room. It's the biggest watch brand in the world. It historically does not speak to the press. It's not unusual. I reached out to them twice for my story and they didn't have comment, didn't respond about their sourcing. They don't have a statement on their website about their sourcing at all. And, um, you know, it's not, I, I actually think they probably do a pretty great job of it. I doubt Rolex would ever be caught out on any of these topics, but because they don't communicate on them, what are you left to think? Except mm, maybe you have something to hide. At least that's what a lot of the activists tend to think. So I think things are changing. The one brand of the 13 I reached out to from my article in the Swiss watch trade, the one brand that came back to me with actual specific information was IWC. I spoke to their CEO, Christoph Granger Hare, and he revealed the actual refinery where they sourced their gold, the Swiss refinery, and named it and talked about actually how much gold they source, which historically companies 
companies don't do that. I think out of fear of security or perhaps competition. If if companies know how much gold you source, your competitors can calculate how much you're selling. To me, I as a consumer, I I think so what you know? Why does that even matter? But there's a culture of secrecy, and it's centuries old. It's kind of hard to undo. Yeah, and I think gold sourcing. I did a big article on it. I mean, there are things you can do and there are things you should do that are important, but there's no real magic bullet. There's no easy answer. You know, a lot of people, as we've mentioned, you know, will say, well, our gold is recycled, but that can sometimes be worse because sometimes you're recycling from, you know, drug dealers or terrorists or some of these awful people. So, Recycled gold, even though it sounds great, I mean, it has a great name, recycled gold, it's not necessarily a panacea as far as sourcing, because you have to make sure that the recycler is only getting it from legitimate sources. So it's very tough to get a better handle on your gold chain, which doesn't mean you shouldn't try. I think it's important to try, and I think there are certain things that you can do. But, you know, even when the NGOs get involved, they'll say, well, you should do this audit, but this audit isn't as good as this audit and this audit isn't as good as this audit. So it's a complicated subject. It's a hugely complicated supply chain, but it's a supply chain with tremendous issues, worse probably at this point than diamonds because you have the use of mercury and artisanal gold. You have certain areas where it fuels conflict. You have certain gold that creates environmental damage. You have it as a huge vehicle for money laundering, again, by drug dealers and terrorists and warlords and and all sorts of unsavory characters. So I remember last year, a lot of people in the jewelry organization were saying, next year, we're going to focus on gold sourcing because we think this is a big issue and this is something that we really need to get a handle on. And obviously, everybody got distracted with everything else going on, but Gold sourcing, I can see becoming a a huge issue for this industry. You know, Rolex, the brand name is strong enough and the people who buy it aren't necessarily that concerned about responsible sourcing. Probably a huge generalization about Rolex wearers, but, you know, their brand name is strong enough that they don't necessarily have to get in it. I can see certainly the larger industry starting to be concerned with it. It really isn't easy. And I think people have been looking at this for years and it's something that you you really need to dedicate time on. That said, it can be done if you really believe in it and if you want to improve, you can. There's no question. Yeah, well, I think a good place to begin, and this is just a couple of plugs, one for the story you wrote, Rob, for our October issue. If you go to jckalmon.com, just look for our current issues and go find that story on how to start assessing your supply chain and start thinking about responsible gold. And also a, a big plug for somebody I've used as a source, and I've done a Q&A with her for, for JCK, and I also quoted her in my New York Times stories, Christina Miller, Christina T. Miller Consulting. She's based in Ohio and is a former head of ethical metalsmiths and just has a really ton of great info and is really connected to a lot of a lot of NGOs, really her and her lead consultant, Maggie Gabos, are just really wonderful people. So if you are looking to explore this world, you might want to think about hiring a consultant because honestly, going it alone would be very, very challenging. Anyone listening, please have a successful holiday, a safe holiday, a, a happy holiday, and all the best. Thanks for listening to The Jewelry District. 
I'm Natalie Comet, the producer of the podcast. Our editor is Olivia Briley. If you like what you've heard, please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast wherever you may listen. We hope you join us next time on The Jewelry District by JCK. Thank you.